Welcome to the Practicing Principle in All Your Affairs and, uh, workshop. My name is Jerry and I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Would you please join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please make sure. This session is being taped to protect the <coughs> our anonymity. No photographs, audio, or visual recording is allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of the individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or OA as a whole. Please remember two hatters. OA members affiliated with related or other 12-step programs are requested to speak on their recovery in their OA program only. An Ask It Basket will be circulating for questions and answers portion of this session. If there's any press in the room, please respect our anonymity by not taking any pictures, using video cameras, or using our full names. Please check the printed program so that you can make sure you're in the correct place. Uh, I'm just reading the script, okay. <laughs> the format for this session is as follows. We have two speakers. They will share for 25 minutes each followed by 15 minutes of questions and answers. Our first speaker is Betsy and Chill. Hi, I'm Betsy, a gratefully recovering compulsive reader. Hi. Um, well, first, I want to just qualify a little bit. I've been in program and abstinent for 16 and a half years, um, maintaining a 50-pound weight loss. And because I didn't know the size of the rooms or anything, I did kind of a funky little Xerox of pictures. I mean, you know, you get the story. It's not the uh, details. You'll get the idea. Um, and I also want to make a disclaimer because I almost always cry when I share. <laughs> and um, part of that is just because I am so grateful and touched by this program, but part of it is I'm 49 and it's hormones. I hate to tell you, but it really is sometimes challenging. So when I was looking this week at the topic and thinking, you know, how, what did I want, what did I have to say about it? What did I want to say about it? It took me back to our 12 and 12, and I went through all of the 12 steps because I wanted to read them again. I've worked the steps several times, and I've worked them a couple times from that book and AA literature. It varies, but I love that book. It didn't exist when I came into this program, and so I thought, I'm just going to go through there and see what I think of, you know, what the principles are without even looking at uh, step 12, which kind of gives it away. And... Um, the ones that really came up for me over and over again were honesty and surrender. And I have to say, and actually I want to grab my book for a second. Um, 
I have to say when I first came into program, you know, that the honesty piece was the biggest one for me because I never considered myself a dishonest person. But the piece about honestly looking at your life, because I came in thinking, you know, I'm fat, I just want to lose weight. And it was only, of course, after I got into these rooms that I, you know, saw so, more, so much more than I ever expected that I would. Um, I made a few notes of that, okay. Um, and, you know, the thing about life being unmanageable, well, that wasn't me, but, you know, guess what? I was one of those people that spent their, I was in sales, still am in a way, and so I was out of my home all day, so I spent a good portion of my day, like, amassing the foods that I wanted to eat that night, and I also, I was in the wine business, so I usually drank about a bottle of wine a day, and I smoked cigarettes, so <laughs> I had all those fun cross, uh, cross addictions. And it wasn't until I really started to uh, look at what that meant that I could see, yeah, my life was unmanageable. And the reason I came into these rooms was, too, because I had, you know, hit a career crisis. And my career was the only thing that kept me feeling like a normal person. And when that happened, I thought, you know, I'm just going to end up a bad lady. And it just brought me to these rooms finally, and for that I'm grateful. I found I was able to get a sponsor right away, which again was a huge gift because I know that that's sometimes challenging. So um, after I did some looking around in this book, uh, came up with all of the principles being honesty, hope, faith, and to that I added, added surrender because I think for me that was a big one. Is that in order to have the faith that takes me through this program, I had to have surrender. You know, I came in, I wasn't a religious person. And um, I now feel like I have a really full and fulfilling spiritual life. Um, steps four and five about courage and integrity and willingness. Six and seven about willingness and humility. And eight and nine, um, self-discipline and love. Ten, perseverance. Eleven, spiritual spirituality. And twelve, service. So, you know, how, how do I look at putting those all into practice? You know, a couple years ago, it occurred to me that the best way to really look at that is just to ask, whenever I am in a difficult situation, to ask myself, how do I want to be seen in the world? And to ask God to help me be that person, because that kind of covers them all. And it doesn't mean people-pleasing. It doesn't mean, you know, being somebody different than I am. But it just occurs to me that, do you want an employee that complains? Or do you want an employee that can be a positive agent of change? You know, do you want to be friends with someone who gossips? Or do you want to be friends, friends with someone who, you know, you can have interesting and joyous conversations with? And so all of those sorts of thoughts enter my head. And it, it was particularly poignant for me last year because I was really hating my job. And I, 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 I resisted you know, the gossip thing, I resisted the complaining thing, and, you know, just as God's will would have it, my job is completely turned around. It's the same company, but my job is totally different today, and I love it. And that, you know, is a true, true gift of this program. Um, one of the things that has been a big part of my recovery, is, well, part of my life, is that I've really struggled with depression a lot. And I like to talk about it a little bit in the rooms because I think just as much as the fat, depression is very shameful still, unfortunately, in our society. And um, I had been in program for about five years, and 
as you'll see from my pictures, I grew up as a fat child, and so um, I didn't have a lot of the experiences that other people had in high school. And so I didn't date, you know, and when I had a fair amount of recovery, that, you know, and I did some other things to sort of support that, um, I really wanted to be in a relationship, and it wasn't happening for me. And, and I came into this program at 32, and so by 38, I'd pretty much given up on, you know, having a relationship, a long-term relationship, having kids, owning a home, and I decided I'd better buy a home for myself. And I just remember moving in there, and this huge wave of depression came over me that didn't live for like three years. And I just fought it and fought it. Um, but the thing that it brought to me during that time was two things, the caring fellowship that we have here and also a connection with God because that was a time where I, I used it relentlessly. I had a, a practice that I used every morning before I started my day, and it really made a huge difference. What I also thought, though, is that, is that I just had to work my program around it and it would go away, and that wasn't, that wasn't true in my case. But I did get help, and it was thanks, again, to someone in these rooms. So at that time, I decided to, you know, do, do it on my own. I bought a house on my own. It was actually a tenancy in common. It was two flats that I bought in the city, which, as you know, in the Bay Area, you know, as a single person, it's pretty impossible task to buy something on your own. And... Um, Shortly after I bought it, the people I bought it with backed out. They were, it was a gay couple. They broke up. And, again, that whole feeling of I'm sunk here. I'm alone. I, you know, the economic insecurity, the, just the fear, the huge fear around what was going to happen next um, just was paramount. And I just remember sitting at my desk one day when I just suddenly felt this complete acceptance and surrender that I was going to be okay. And it really made me understand at that time that surrender isn't something that I can force or push, that it just comes. But every one of these principles for me is around action. You know, it means that I have to do the footwork, whatever it might be, whether it's writing or talking to my sponsor or doing a 10-step or whatever. So I just knew I was going to be okay. And then the house, the other part of the house was sold. It was sold to a single woman, and it was a great experience for me because she was very much like me in age. She's single, you know, and, and it brought great energy to the house. And um, then I met her brother and we got married. And <laughs> so it just was such an example of, you know, you can't time things in your own life. It's, you know, God brings them along when you're ready. And, and that was an interesting situation too because the first time we met, I thought our eyes locked and we were you know, destined to be together, but it didn't happen for about a year. And I remember um, the one time, and this is, again, where the whole surrender and acceptance comes in of where my life is, because one of the things that I did was a lot of footwork around this. I did a lot of dating. I did a lot of, um, you know, Match.com and all those things that can be so difficult sometimes. And actually, I, I liked something that, that the fourth, that fourth step is in the fourth step because it, it's some summarizes this as well as some other things, and it says, willing to do the inventory and wanting to do the inventory were two different things. And that is so true of what I found in my life. Willing to do something, willing to do the footwork versus wanting to do the footwork can be two entirely different things. And so I felt that even though the whole dating thing was painful, if it was something I wanted, I had to do it. So um, Brian, you know, the love of my life, wasn't 
asking me out. And I was really surprised because, again, I thought we had this connection. But as I sort of got to know him, I could see he was kind of shy. He was kind of reserved. And, you know, later he tells me, you know, he, he had, my, his sister and I had sort of a business relationship, and he didn't want to, you know, come in the middle of that. So after uh, Sheila had lived there for about a year, I asked Brian if he would come help me put in a cat door. And so he came. We put in the cat door. He went upstairs. He got a shower. He came back down to my back door, and I thought, He's going to ask me out now. I just know he is. So I open the door, and I'm all smiles, and he's like, here's the bill for the cat door. <laughs> and I thought, this is so not going to happen. <laughs> and then a week later, he called me, and by the third date, we knew that we were going to get married. And, you know, it was, that, it was just mir- miraculous, you know. It's just a miracle in my life. So, um I think the whole principle around that was just the faith. You know, I had this faith that if I did the footwork, and even though it always seemed like it wasn't turning out the way it was supposed to, if I had the faith and I did the footwork, that it would happen for me. And I was blessed in that way. Um, Step four talks about courage and integrity. (laughs) And I I recently had a, um, a situation where that really came into play, and it just, when it happened, I thought, thank God for OA because it would have been totally, the outcome would have been totally different um, 20 years ago. I um, recently moved into a new job within my company, and as I was training my replacement, I was kind of working two jobs and um, had, make a long story short, had arranged for this event, and the people on the other end of the event, which weren't with my company, just really dropped the ball, and it was a huge waste of our time, and, you know, I brought someone in from out of town and blah, blah, blah. So I wrote a recap to the person, I'll call her Jane, who was organizing it and, you know, just did it in a really professional, kind way because I didn't want to point the finger, indict her or anything. And then after I did that, I sent an email, you know, and I copied all my peers on it and I sent an email to them and I said, I hope this wasn't too harsh. You know, I was just trying to be constructive and I just want to let you know, since you're taking over my job, you know, that you have to be careful because she can suck the air out of you. And as soon as I sent it, I realized I had copied her on it. She was on that original list, so. Have you ever had that feeling where, like, from here up, it's like this fire just goes, you know, through your whole body? And I I knew it the second I sent it. I was like, shit, I just copied her on that horrible email. Well, I learned two lessons there. One, you never say, you know, you never put things like that in writing, and I knew that, so that was a really good lesson for me. But the thing that was so, so this program for me is I instantly picked up the phone. I called her. I said, I, and I didn't get her. I got her voicemail. I said, you know, I just sent a horrible email. I hope you can forgive me. It was rude. It was mean. It was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I hope you will talk to me. You know, I hope we can have a conversation about this. So um, a couple days went by. I didn't hear from her. And, you know, I talked to her boss because her boss was a good friend of mine. And everybody's reaction to this is always, <gasps> and then they break out laughing. Because I found out that a lot of people have done something like this or been at the other end of it in their life. And it's just a mortifying experience. But you know, it has a little bit of comic angle to it as well. And so anyway, when I finally did get to talk to her, I swear to God, I felt like she was in program because she was just so kind and open and forgiving. And, uh, you know, 
I might have been a jerk, but I wasn't a jerk that didn't own what I did. You know, I had enough integrity, and it was just instantaneous. I didn't even have to think about it. That I would never want to hurt someone like that, and I would never want to um, be so unprofessional and be unkind. You know, and so that that was a really great lesson for me in a lot of ways. So. Um, the principle of willingness, being entirely ready to have all defects of character removed, is also a challenging one for me because I did a ton of work on this and it was really, it was probably about the fourth time I went through the steps, but it was really in depth, it was really in incredibly labored. And I would say that the, that the, that the sixth and seventh steps um, had more change for me than the fourth and fifth step because of that. Because so many of my problems are because of my character defects. I mean, it just goes without saying. And, you know, the sucky thing about it is that they come back. You know, they don't stay away. It's the constant, you know, spiritual connection in this program that, that helps me work with those. Um, I really love the principle of humility. And in, the, in our um, 12 and 12, it says, simply an awareness of who we are and the willingness to be the best that we can be. And I didn't understand that concept of humility at first, but I, I love the idea of just a, simply an awareness of who we are, and it just, again, goes back to that, who do I want to be seen as in this world? And it has a lot to do with acceptance for me as well. I mean, I, I'm currently in a situation where I've actually gained five pounds because I destroyed my foot a few months ago. I can't exercise. I have a, a you know, a, a dance practice, I have, you know, I love to hike, I have a swimming practice, I have all these things that I can't do right now, and I also have not apparently had the willingness to eat less food. So, you know, what happens when you take away one of those parts of the combination is, you know, I've gained um, about five pounds in the last couple of months, and it's been very humbling to me because I have been pretty much able to maintain my weight loss, and all of a sudden I have clothes that are uncomfortable, and, you know, I feel, I guess I feel, you know, embarrassed in these rooms because I, because I care what you all think about me. And that, you know, that is unfortunate because, um, as, you know, it says in our literature, it's none of my business what you think of me. But I think that we still do, you know, pay attention to that with our fellows and how their recovery is going and, and how it looks on their bodies. Um, I've also added a couple of principles that was that ten minutes? Was that the ten minute warning? Okay, that have really worked for me because I travel a lot for business, and as you know, travel's not all that much fun anymore. <laughs> and so, um, one of the things that I really try to practice is what I call a Zen mentality when I'm in, at airports because it can be it can be crazy making. And um, a couple of months ago, I was heading back to Buffalo to go to my niece's graduation and I flew from San Francisco to Chicago when I got into Chicago I ran for my connection and I watched it pull away from the gate and it was you know a Friday and traveling on Fridays just sucks anyway because everybody's traveling on Fridays and so they told me they could get me on another flight on Sunday night you know two and a half days later and you know I the one thing that I have come to really believe in is that 
it doesn't make a situation better by getting upset and, you know, especially with airline people because, you know, their life is, I think, not so great. People, <laughs> people, you know, are always um, irate with them and a lot of times that they're powerless. And so I stood in the line for an hour and a half and, um, and they were able to get me on a flight to Rochester, which is about two and a half hours away from Buffalo, and I thought, well, that works. I can do that, and I'll call my sister. She'll tell me how to get to the graduation, and it'll be fine. And they assured me my bag would be on it um, because the flight wasn't leaving for five hours. So I get on the plane. It, you know, everything's delayed. I don't get in until midnight, and I haven't been able to get a hold of my sister because she had her phone turned off. And, you know, I just put, I was getting, you know, a little worked up about it, because I didn't know where to go, and it was all these backcountry roads and whatever. And, um, you know, so I'm still at the airport at 1 in the morning because my bag didn't show up. And so here I'm in a different city, you know. And the thing that was astounding to me is I'd been traveling for about 16 hours by then, and I was completely okay with people until I got in my car and I said, I hate my life. <laughs> and, you know, at that point it was okay because it was just how I felt with me at that moment and that past. And the next day I got to go to my niece's graduation because I did figure it out, and it was just so wonderful to be there. Um, so one of my principles, that I, as I was saying, because I travel a lot, I have um, a couple of principles around my food, and one is that your food is not my food. And by that I mean just because you can eat nuts and cheese and this and that doesn't mean that I can eat it. And... Um, I'm in meetings a lot where they have, you know, the big display tables in the back of food, and, and it's, you know, my mantra is that's not my food. That's not my food. When I look at a menu, I know that I'm going, for, especially for lunch, I'm going to the salad with protein section. That sexy part of the menu is not my food. And that has really helped me so much because I think that some of the hardest times from a food plan-wise is when you're on the road. You know, when I go on vacation, my food plan doesn't go on vacation. And that is, has been really fundamental in keeping me sane in this program and keeping me sane on the road because, you know, the minute I start playing, going down that road, and it is, it is a very steep and slippery slope, I know the direction that I'm headed in. So um, one of the things that's been really helpful to me is daily 10-step inventory. And um, a few years ago, I had a wonderful sponsor who sadly relapsed and, and left program. And one of the, I think, most important things she did for me in this program was give me a 10-step format that I still use today, and I love it. It's, um, it's not short, it's not sweet, but it's, every part of it serves a purpose. And it starts out with writing a third-step prayer. And the, the reason I like that is because every time I write the third-step prayer and read the third-step prayer, I find something else and a different meaning in it that, that makes a big difference to me. And then um, the next thing is to list my character defects. And that keeps, you know, keeps it kind of front of mind. The thing I was saying about six and seven, they come back, they go, they come back. The next is a gratitude list because no matter how funky a mood I'm in, it makes a huge difference to be able to say that, you know, I'm grateful that I can get out of bed today, or I'm grateful for my goofy dogs, or whatever it might be. 
And then the next thing is things I like about myself. When I first started doing this, that was one of the hardest things. You know, I didn't have a lot to put there. But over time, I feel like I've gotten to know myself better, and the things I can put in that area are really true and meaningful and something to be proud of. Things I don't miss about compulsive overeating. That's a big one. I mean, I love remembering back what it was like 17 years ago, and I, I can remember it very distinctly. You know, the craziness, the running around for the food, the feeling disgusting, you know, digestive problems, all of those things. And it's, and, you know, not fitting well in the airplane seat. That wouldn't be much, of, much fun for me right now if that, if that were the case. And then I go through that 10-step inventory, I was resentful, selfish, afraid, and I write about any of those things. And then I write what I've done for my program today, and I close with writing the seven-step prayer about having my character defects removed. And this has been such a powerful tool for me to – I can't do it every day because it does take me about a half hour, but it is so profound for me that I think – you know, there's a couple of things I can point out in all the years I've been in program that have made a huge difference in my life, and this is one of them. So I, um, I just love it, and I love to share it with people because the people that I've shared it with have found the same sort of recovery around it. And what my sponsor was telling me today that he has a friend in program who won't take a call from their sponsor unless they've written a 10th step. And I thought, that's kind of cool. You know, that kind of pushes the envelope a little bit to, to really take action. I don't want to be that hard-ass. I mean, I, you know, I, I can be, but I, I don't want to be that way. So, And then um, just the whole thing about service in Step 12. You know, I know that this is service speaking, but to me this is a gift that the program gives me is to be able to stand up and talk about my recovery because I feel like I've just been so blessed in this program with um, – with everything, but one of the things that is, is so important to me and the reason I feel like I can take my program on the road is that my program exists in every aspect of my life. It's not, uh, it's not one category or another. You know, my, my friends are people in program, and that, didn't, that happened in a sort of less than intentional way, but the longer I'm in these rooms, the more, you know, I you know, want to choose who I want to spend my time with. Um, I get calls when I'm on the road. I spoke at a meeting in Hawaii a couple, a few months ago, and one of the people from that meeting calls me all the time, and I just love it, you know, because sometimes I'm on the road when she calls. I run into people in airports from program. Um, all of this just supports my program and sur surrounds me. Even um, when I got married, my sponsor was our officiant, and it just makes it part of my life. Every every moment of my life has some impact because of this program. And so that is why when I get up, I'm grateful and I cry because my life is so different because of these rooms and all of you and the steps and the tools and the principles of this program. So thank you. Did everybody get to ask it back our next speaker is Anthony, so step right up. Hi, my name is Anthony. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Betsy. That was great. 
Um, first, I thought I'd just qualify. I've been in OA for a little over 16 years. I've been abstinent for those 16 years. Uh, the abstinence I practice is three meals a day, uh, nothing in between, no sugar, one day at a time. Um, for me, I plan each meal before I eat it. Before I take the first bite, I plan the last bite. So, you know, if I like some food that I'm eating, I planned it, and you know what? It's, I don't get to have more just because I liked it or whatever. And for me, I talk about that a little bit because um, I had had a lot of success at times dieting before I came to OA. Then I didn't have success anymore for years. <laughs> but when I um, came to OA, you know, that diet mentality was really deep in me. And I have to be really careful that my abstinence, you know, doesn't become dieting for me. So I've got to plan. It's the clarity that is what defines my abstinence more than, um, like, calorie counting or whatever. I weigh a little over 50 pounds less than I did when I came in. When I came in, I was gaining weight, I think, um, weekly. I was really binging heavily when I came to OA. Um, got a lot of obesity, extreme obesity in my family. Um, and when I came in, I was just eating huge quantities of food day and night, particularly at night, and suffering a lot of, I was 27 or 28. I was suffering a lot of physical defects. My teeth were loose, my mouth would bleed. Um, you know, I would sit and eat every night and swear I will, I will never eat like this ever again as long as I live. And then I would do it the next night, and that was going on for a couple of years before I came in. So it was, it was painful for food. Um, I was aware that I was overweight, and I, uh, I was also aware that I hated myself, and I was aware that um, I was overweight because I ate a lot and I ate a lot of junk food. That was pretty clear to me. Um, but believe it or not, even. With that not that knowledge, there was still a lot of denial that didn't really come out until I started working a formal first step with my sponsor when I got to OA. I um I came into I grew up on the East Coast and I came into OA my first few years in the East Coast in Washington DC area. I'm the youngest of seven kids. My dad was a career military officer. So I was acquainted with the principles of willingness and discipline at a young age. And um, I was a disappointment in those categories to my dad. <laughs> he pointed it out to me regularly, you know. And I, I kind of, you know, when I look back at my my eating and stuff, I, I started gaining weight when I was like six or seven. Kids, I know it only because, like, I wasn't really conscious, and I'll talk about that, you know. But kids pointed out to me that I was overweight. Um, thanks for doing that, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, so then I asked my dad, why do kids make fun of me? And he said, oh, you're overweight. And I said, why am I overweight? And he said, you eat too much. And I said, why do we eat too much? And I go, what do I do? And he said, don't eat so much. Don't eat junk food. Don't eat candy. And he told me exactly what to do. And then, like, literally, like, the next day, you know, after I'd eaten a ton of candy, I said, hey, I, I didn't do it. Why didn't I do it? And he said, because you don't have any discipline. You know, if you had one ounce of discipline, you could do this. And I remember I was, like, in the third grade. And so right there, like, I was already overweight. I was already kind of, you know, self-conscious about my weight because kids tease me and stuff. I began hating myself right then, you know, because it was like, oh, it was all my fault. You know, that was the belief I, I, I took on. So um, so I became self-obsessed. I didn't know that, but, you know, I did. I was obsessed with myself. Um, you know, what, what would people think of me and what do people think of me and how do I avoid people and, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, when I came to OA and I read the big book, I, I worked my program out of the AA big book mostly and the 12 and 12, and it talks a lot about self-centeredness, you know, and, and that's what I understand it to be in my case, you know, is I grew up, hey, obsessed with myself, not, like, I would have 
you had told me that early in my life, I would have said, no, I, you know, that sounds like somebody who thinks they're great. And I certainly didn't think I was great. I somebody thought I was crappy, but that was my obsession with myself, you know. And because of that, you know, um, and, and a lot of other things, I guess, you know, I wasn't really conscious of life, you know. And when I, um, I just was kind of afraid of things and bumped from one thing to another and fell into drugs and alcohol and, you know, morbid obesity at a young age and my teenage years and all that stuff. And, you know, when I look at this topic of um, practice these principles in all our affairs, you know, for me, the first thing that jumps out at me is, is you know, as I came to OA and I worked the steps and stuff and got to the 12 step and everything, is, you know, well, what are my affairs, you know, and what are these principles? And, um, you know, I never saw myself acting in my life. I just reacted to life mostly with fear and stuff, and I didn't see myself as like, well, what's my role and all that stuff. And I was very out of touch with, you know, myself and other people, how I was, you know, perceived and all that stuff. And so for me, that's been, um, you know, it's like coming conscious, you know. Waking up has been a process over these many years. And the things I'll talk about, you know, um, mostly around that are like, that are easy places to see it as work in, in my career and in relationships, you know. And um, when, I, uh, when I came to OA, I was, I'd just been fired from a job. I was like 28 years old. And I had been, it was like kind of like my first real job out of college. And I had had it for a couple of years. And I'd taken me like six years to graduate college because it was deep in the food and the other stuff. And it was really difficult for me to uh, focus. And, um, you know, I, I got a job and it, it kind of started going badly right away. And, but I showed up every day for it. And, um, you know, gained a ton of weight more on that job. Finally, you know, got laid off or fired or whatever. They said they were going to lay people off. I was happened to be the first one. <laughs> and um, so I, I might be fired. <laughs> um, and then I was, you know, unemployed for a few months. And I was, you know, at the height of my weight. I was eating like I said I was when I came in. I was living in an apartment. You know, I wasn't like conscious of money. I didn't pay attention to it. So looking back, I realized I was really kind of paying my rent on my credit card. You know, I mean, I just, whatever. I, I mean, I had enough I had enough problems to not worry about other problems. You know, I was just like, hey, I hate myself because of what I just ate, and I'm determined not to do it tomorrow or tonight, and I just won't think about anything else, you know. I used to, like, the most common thought I had at that time always was, some thought would come in my mind, like just for like a, like a flash on a movie screen, just like a, a frame, and I'd think I'll think about that later. But right now I'm gonna have something to eat. And um, I lived like that for years. So I was like paying my rent on my credit card, and I was alone. I wasn't connected to people, and I was unemployed. I was really afraid. Like this is it, you know? This is it. What's gonna happen to me? Because, you know, one option would be like somehow go back to my parents' house, move in my dad's basement, and have him yell at me, because um, you know he would uh, be really upset if I had come home. And then the other option was I was afraid like, I was going to become homeless or something, you know, and, and what was going to become of me? You know, I was obsessed with myself. What was going to become of me? Not like, hey, what should I do? <laughs> you know, what action should I take? And I did get a job eventually, and right after that, I, um, I ended up in OA and um, started working steps with a sponsor. A guy reached out to me. It was great. and started helping me. And um, I started on a new path. And you know, I started slowly becoming conscious of, like, my affairs. And, you know, as I worked the steps and so forth, I started becoming conscious of, um, 
you know, the principles that I could practice, like at work, for example. Um, today I work, I work for a big company. Everybody knows it. it's a global company, and I've been there about seven and a half years. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, I don't say this to pat myself on the back, but I, it's like, I like to be clear with people because, you know, I'm clear that, like, hey, I got fired, you know. I can be clear, like, when things go well, because that's that's a product of the of the program of OA and the recovering stuff. I've been at this company for over seven years, and, you know, they they give us a review every year, and they do it on a curving scale, and, like, there's the top 5% of the company get the best review, and I've been in that review now for two years in a row. And, um, you know, that's been, like, a conscious effort to say to myself, well, you know, if I'm going to be here, I would like to be successful here, and I would like to figure out, you know, what it takes to be successful and how that squares with working, you know, my OA program. Because the principles that are most important to me at work are um, honesty and integrity. The company I work for is kind of in the, in the business world known for being one of the most political companies in the world. So it's like how do you succeed in a like hugely political environment with people who are pretty motivated to uh, – to move up and stuff, and um, and maintain honesty and integrity. And you know, by the way, I'll put an asterisk just because I'm speaking about practicing these principles in all our affairs doesn't mean I'm perfect at it. You know, uh, I'm sure I've had my moments and my days, and you know, there's things that could be pointed out that I wouldn't feel great about. But I've worked hard to try to be aware of it and stuff. I decided a few years ago, by the way, um, at work that uh, I asked myself, what's my philosophy at work? You know, like to be successful. And I decided that my philosophy at work was keep it simple. Like, I just told myself every day, that's my job, keep it simple. And a couple of years ago, when I first started getting my really good reviews and stuff, my boss, you know, she sent out this uh, email to people all over the company and said, please review Anthony and write, send me stuff for his review. And she goes, you know, this is really weird, but three people wrote the exact same thing. Anthony really knows how to keep it simple. <laughs> and... and uh, you know, it was strange, and it was like when she said that, like God was in the room for a moment. You know, like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, God's here, because you know, I I didn't, you know, I just showed up and and tried to to do that at work, and all of a sudden people start telling it back to you, and it was a it was fun, it was a spiritual experience, and you know, having been fired from jobs and stuff in the past, uh, you know, it's nice to have somebody sit there and tell you something like that and feel like God's in the room rather than having people tell me, like, hey, you're doing a horrible job, and then I leave and start praying to God desperately, you know, outside the room. Um, it, it was really gratifying. The um, the other place that, you know, I've, I've tried a lot to, to practice principles of, of honesty and integrity, and, and by the way, I'll, I'll say at work, you know, it's funny, too. I heard a, a definition once in OA of integrity, and it always stuck with me. I don't know that this is, like, you know, this is uh, in the literature anywhere. I just heard it. But I was, I ended up at work, you know, it was one of those periods at work, like big companies always do. It's all of a sudden everybody's in a room and it's like, hey, things are dysfunctional. They're not working. Let's talk about it. And the topic was integrity. And they went around the room and people, they said, what do you think integrity means, you know, at work? And people said, you know, they would just say like, well, I think when so-and-so does such and such, they should really do such and such. And then that would be integrity or whatever. And when it came to me, I said the thing I learned in OA, which is like integrity is, you know, you say what you're going to do and then you do it. And that like just killed the room, you know. <laughs> it was like the party was over, you know. And, you know, you, you, I always know like that you definitely, you know, when you're talking the truth, it kills the room or it livens the room, one or the other. But, 
So, so it's been an interesting experience and journey, you know, with, with my career and with work and stuff, and I've been really grateful for it. Um, I show up at work today, you know, today I have um, a wife, I'm blessed, we have a great marriage, she's a stay-at-home mom, I have a son, I'll turn two in about a week, and, you know, work becomes like a whole different ballgame for me because there's this whole new pressure of, hey, I've got to, you know, make this money, and if I don't, you know, if I lost this job, we wouldn't have health care, and I wouldn't have income, and you know, all that stuff. It's easy to be obsessed with that thought and fear and feel that pressure and stuff. And the irony is, is I'm a thousand times more relaxed at work every day than I've ever been, and I'm more relaxed about the future, too. Um, you know, I'm confident about it. Not confident that I, I could go in tomorrow not, or Monday and not have a job or whatever. Anybody could, I suppose. That's I can't be confident about things that I can't control, but I'm confident about um, the fact that, you know, if I just show up a day at a time and do the right things, I'll be taken care of, because I have been since I started doing that. Before I came here, like I said, things were going so, so downhill so fast, and then once I started taking these steps and these spiritual actions and stuff and working this program, a day at a time, things have gone, um, you know, measurably better for me, so I'm really grateful. I um, When I left home when I was... I was in high, high school and I was um, applied to college. I was about 70 pounds overweight, I remember, because it's like in January I got this letter that said, hey, you're accepted to college, which was kind of a surprise. And um, I remember when I got it, you know, the first thing that went through my mind is um, this college is 100 miles from home. So when I get there, nobody will know me. So if I lose all this weight before I get there, I'll be okay. I'll be happy. People will like me, you know. So I went on a crash diet right then, and I lost. I remember I lost. I went to one of those diet places, and I paid them, and they gave me, like, booklets and pamphlets, and they gave me, um, uh, like, these chewable supplements, and they gave me this diet and stuff. And I went home. I was 18, you know, and I was a compulsive reader, and I just threw it all away, and I ate, like, hot dogs and boiled eggs and weighed myself there every week, and I was the star, you know, like, <laughs> they were like, you're great, you know, and I lost 70 pounds in like 14 weeks, and I got really thin, and um, I went to college, you know, I went to college really thin, and, you know, I'm so much more, at 45, interested in things like science and literature and economics and government and politics and history, and like I was sitting around and just saying to somebody I just watched so long, long PBS special on Churchill and stuff. And it's such a shame, you know, because I never even gave a second thought why am I going to college, you know. I, I was, like, I was going to lose my virginity, you know. That was, like, the only, you know, and I had no, like, I had no backup plan, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I was overweight my whole life. I hadn't had a date in high school, and nobody, you know. I never asked him, you know, I was too afraid, I was too nervous, I was too shy. And uh, but so that that was my goal and um, goal of mission accomplished by the way. <laughs> Eventually, um, took a long time actually. Um, but anyways, you know I went there um, not conscious of anything, you know. And so I, I I got a girlfriend eventually and everything. We dated for a couple of crazy years and I wasn't conscious, you know. Thanks. And um, you know then then. I gained some weight back, and I was like, oh, I know what to do, you know, just eat hot dogs and boiled eggs or whatever. And and I did, and I lost like 30 pounds, pow, you know, and then I gained it right back. And then I lost like half of it, 
then I gained more. You guys know the rest of the story, and then I just started gaining all through my 20s, and that's when I, um, you know, I got to my highest weights and stuff before it came to OA. And so after I got abstinent and started working the program stuff, you know, I was in my late 20s, you know, of course I was interested in relationships still, and um, dating, and, uh, you know, doing anything like work or relationships or having a life where I wasn't using the food as a way to anesthetize myself to, you know, handle it and everything, it was much more intimidating and scary than it had even been when I went to college and everything. I was, you know, I felt all over again like I was in eighth grade or something. And, um, you know, I, I had uh, different relationships with sometimes with women in program, sometimes women out of program, different lengths of time, whatever. Um, but none of them lasted. And then when I was like in my early-ish 30s, I started dating someone. And um, I made this like conscious decision. I remember I said to her, like I, I don't know, I'd been to some like OA conference or something, you know, some meeting like this or something. And I said, I'm going to make myself vulnerable with you. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel about everything. She said, okay, I'll do the same thing. And, um, you know, so, like, immediately, I, you know, I fell head over heels in love with her, and, you know, it's like we were, like, nose to nose 24-7 for, like, you know, four months, and then we broke up in some huge flame out. And um, then I obsessed about it every day for, like, four years. And then, and then um, long story short, I went to, uh, it was New Year's Eve, the year 2000, you know, the big century change. And I went to a New Year's Eve party that I, I, I didn't want to go to because my friend said, because this guy was a mutual friend of ours, and I'd been avoiding you know. And so I said, oh, all right, dude, you know, she's not going to be there, is she? And he said, I haven't seen her in years, you know. I said, okay. So I showed up, of course, she shows up. And, you know, I spent, like, New Year's Eve 2000 with this woman I'd been obsessed with, like, four years. We were watching fireworks over San Francisco while she made out with her new boyfriend. And I stood there with my hands in my pockets, like, it was freezing cold, you know, which was, like, the best thing that ever happened to me, you know. It was like, um, man, you know, finally I got broke open inside. It was like, oh, it's like bursting a bad zit or something, you know, on my soul. And because um, it was like, this was the thing I've been afraid of all my life and all these years. This is what I've been dreading. And here it is. And you know what? Like, whatever. I survived it. And then I, um, so I started dating again. And then I, and I, now I was in my late 30s and I got, I said, oh, I've got to, you know, hey, I'm in my late 30s. I want to meet somebody and, you know, date them for a little while, then get married and all that stuff. And so I, I, Pick the wrong person, threw myself into it 100%. Usually in the past, and sometimes I'd pick the right person and throw myself into it like 10%. And then this time I picked the wrong person, threw myself into like 100%. And um, that exploded. And then the night that that ended, uh, it was like 10 o'clock at night, and I said, okay, man, I cannot do four years of just thinking about this day and night. I will go crazy. I mean, I'm abstinent, you know? Like, I'm not supposed to be living like this. I've worked the steps and everything. And um, so I called my sponsor, and he had me write a 10-step that night. And I'd call him back and read it to him like an hour later. And I wrote a 10-step about it every day, um, sometimes two, sometimes three, uh, 10 steps, you know. And, like, I didn't know what else to do, you know. Like, what else am I going to do? There's nothing left to do. I just wrote these 10 steps, and I called him every day and read them to him. And I was really, you know, by the way, I always tell people, like, I was really upset by the idea. I was like, I, there's nothing new to write. I'm just going to tell you I'm writing the same thing every day. And he's like, then write the same thing every day and call me and read it to me every day. And... um so I did, and like in like a month it was like half lifted, and like two months it was totally lifted, and like two and a half months she called me and said, "Hey, you want to get back together?" I was like, "Nah, I don't." And then like 
I did it for like another month and a half for like insurance, you know, I wrote them every day. <laughs> and um, then I was, I was healed, you know, I was totally healed. And you know what, it's weird, but I've been healed on that one thing ever since. Like, it's this whole thing in me about relationships and dating and all that stuff. I just got, I got healed, it was weird. And I started dating, and it, you know, like all my life I've been obsessed with confident people. I remember being like six years old and overweight and, you know, kind of the butt of jokes and stuff and looking at other guys and going like, why are they confident, you know? How do you be confident? How do you become confident, you know? And, um, you know, I always remember like, you know, they said like, hey, with, with women, you know, five minutes, thanks. With women, you know, confidence is the most important thing. And I was always like, God, I hate those kind of women, you know. Why you know, why can't like insecurity and fear be attractive? <laughs> you know, so, so much more common, you know. And I still you know, by the way, I still think like, what is wrong with it, you know? I mean, it's just like human, but but um but anyways, I um all of a sudden I had confidence in dating, like a hundred percent confidence. And here was my confidence, because all my life it dawned on me when I wrote those ten steps, I asked myself, uh, well what's your definition of confidence? And I thought, like, the first thing that came to me was, like, well, people who, you know, know they're going to succeed. And, like, that's not a realistic definition of confidence because nobody can see the future, you know. And then what I realized was, was, you know, my definition of confidence is, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to succeed or not, but I know that on the other side of it, I'm not going to hate myself. Like, I'm just going to be there for myself. It's going to be okay. And then suddenly, you know, it was just so easy to ask women out and to go on dates and, like I just started dating and just being myself and being open and just telling the truth and like I'd date somebody three times and it was like hey this not gonna work it's fine it's okay and we move on and stuff and um, then I met this woman dated her you know and she became my wife and you know in October we'll be married four years and you know she always said like sometimes like when I had an insecure moment like oh I got to speak at this OA meeting I'm really nervous you know she'd be like the reason I married you is because you're so confident you know I go. <laughs> I just got healed in that one area, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm still working on the rest, so thanks. But, um, but anyways, um, you know, kind of coming back to the, the topic of practicing these principles in all my affairs, um, you know, for me, and, and Betsy talked a lot about all the principles and, and, you know, did a great job on that. And, it's you know, I have a hard time holding all that in my mind, you know. But honesty is the one that is, like, super clear to me. And, you know, they told me, my sponsor, and people when I came, Hey, this is a program of rigorous honesty, and you're going to have to practice it in your life if you're going to be, you know, abstinent. If you're going to stay abstinent, you have to practice honesty. And um, also, I noticed, you know, by the way, in the big book, like just the big book, there's a 12 and 12, there's all this OA literature, you know, all this positiveness at meetings and stuff, but there's one place, one sentence where it says, hey, this doesn't work in one instance, and that's if you're not honest. If you're, like, constitutionally incapable of being honest, this won't work. And, um, by the way, you know, like that was like I heard that in one of my first meetings. I was like, oh, okay, it doesn't work, you know. <laughs> but, you know, honesty is absolutely, in my mind, you know, anyone can practice honesty. And honesty, I feel like when I open my mouth and I just tell the truth, um, you know, miracles happen. I feel like when I open my mouth and tell the truth, that's when God walks in the room, you know. Um, you know, it doesn't mean like... I get the next thing that I want or the next whatever that I want. Um, but that's what happens, you know, that in the end everything will be fine because I told the truth and, you know, life just seems to work better. This company I work at now when I first came there, you know, I interviewed for the job and everything. And, um, you know, 
they said, well, let's talk. They said, okay, we're interested in hiring you. Let's talk about salary. So, you know, that's an opportunity to not be honest, you know, because you want to start up here, you know. And um, so I said, here's exactly what I make. And I, it was the truth. And I said, and here's exactly what I want. And it was way higher, you know. And she kind of smirked, you know. And um, so she started back where I said, here's what you make. Well, here's like another $2,000, you know. And um, it was so funny because, um, you know, I work a program around this stuff. And I was just calm and I was just happy. And I was just myself. And I just told the truth. And I explained to her why, you know, I thought I needed to make so much more money and that I couldn't take it for less and she wasn't having it. And, um, you know, at the end, she came closer and closer and closer. And then she came with, like, just, like, just almost right to what I said I had to have. And I said, no, i, I got to have that, <laughs> you know, or I can't do this. And she was like, I, she looked at me. She's like, I do this all day long. I can't believe you. You know, I can't believe you're saying no. And I got, hey, i got to draw the line somewhere, you know. And this is where I draw it. And uh, she said, okay. And she shook my hand, and I left, you know. And I, um, I I walked across the street to where I was working, sat down. An email came and said, okay, you can have it. <laughs> you know? And, um, you know, that was a smart move, by the way. <laughs> Let me tell you, you get money when you move from job to job. Nobody ever gives it to you afterwards. But, um, you know, is this a miracle? Like this, And the miracle was was when I walked across the street after she said, okay, forget it. I felt fine. I felt totally fine. I just felt I'll be taken care of because I just told the truth. You know, I told the truth the best I could. So, anyways, I'm really grateful for OA. It's been a miracle for me. It's been a miracle in my life. It continues to be a miracle today. You know, I'll just wrap up really quickly. You know, I like to tell people sometimes I go to meetings with that I live with a perfect person because my son Zach will be two next week. And he really is perfect because, you know, he's just himself all the time. And whether he's happy or sad or whatever, he's always 100% honest with me, you know. And it's really an amazing experience to be around a two-year-old and have that. And um, today we were playing before I came here, and he went under a table for a ball, and he stood up and he slammed his head into the table, you know. And he says, sorry, Zachy's head. <laughs> and I said to myself, you know, like he, he even makes amends to himself, you know, like, to his own head. I mean, like that's perfect, you know. So anyways, thanks a lot. Okay, I guess the way this works is that uh, you guys can take turns on doing the questions. So, I guess you'll start then. I think maybe if you read it, it, I mean, oh. it might not apply to one of them. Oh. You know, sometimes that's the case. When let go of resentment, what replaces the caring, the craving need to get revenge? When letting go of resentment, what replaces the caring need to get revenge? Craving need, sorry. Not caring, craving need. So we're letting go of revenge. Uh, mm -hmm. okay. What replaces the craving need to get revenge? Um, you know, the thing that occurs to me about that was something I just might have referenced earlier, which is, to do the footwork and then just wait for the acceptance of the surrender is how, it, how it's always worked for me. Because I am the most resentful person in the world. And I can, I, my mother always called me the sensitive one. 
by that, I get insulted by everything. Like, you know, I take offense to everything. And so it's really easy for me to, you know, have resentment. And by doing the 10th step, I can see them much more clearly. But also, when they are very real and ongoing for me, I know that if I just continue to do the 10th step, that they get lifted at some point. And it's not something I can force or make happen, but they just get replaced with, you know, a sense of, of relief. I guess it would be, or a sense of forgiveness it might be. Do you want us both, does anybody want us both to answer these questions or just trade off or what? Yeah. Yeah. Both? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I've gotten revenge a couple of times. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it just wasn't that fulfilling. I mean, you know, it wasn't great. Um, I had a long period of my life where I was obsessed with like film noir movies, you know, because they're all about like someone making us like the wrong move, and then it's just endless revenge against that person. But um, for me, you know, I just take that advice from that one woman's story in AA Big Book, which says, "I pray for that person that I have a resentment against," and that's what fills the craving, you know, because um, I hate it, you know, I hate sometimes like somebody they really I feel like I, I'm mad at them, they hurt me, they wronged me, or whatever, and you know, blah blah blah. And, you know, it's so easy for me to go into that mental attack on them. And then I feel unhappy and uncomfortable and just dis- dis- inside and stuff. And so I pray for them and I keep doing it until it lifts, until it's gone. And it usually, you know, happens maybe once I pray and it's over or a couple of days and I pray and it's over. Um, but it really works. That's I've been pretty amazed. Should I just keep going? All right. Put it on my glasses. Uh, how do you know what's your stuff and what's someone else's stuff? Um, I put my name on my stuff. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, I, um, you know, I, I, you don't always, right? But the best way is I have a sponsor and other people who are like guides to me in OA, and I just tell them, hey, you know, and I'm specific with them. Tell them exactly the truth. They're like, this, this is exactly what's going on. I give them the details. Because you give some good details, it's easier for them to help you. And then, um, you know, they can point out. But, um, you know, Beth, you had mentioned about, uh, I think, or somebody mentioned about this, always, you know, I always have, if I have a feeling about it, I have a role in it. And I, it, always part of it, some part of it's my stuff, usually. If it really bothers me, some part of it's mine. But I just try to uh, identify that quickly and turn it over and let it go and tell the person to make amends and then let them do with their stuff with what they want. I think the simple thing is by practicing the principles, you get to see that. Um, And I'll go back to that email story. I know what I would have done 20 years ago. I would have tried to figure out how the hell to get out of it, how to blame her, how to justify my position. You know, it would be all about me. And this time it was more about how, how can I, you know, apologize for my bad behavior. And I think that the more we are honest and practice the principles, it becomes really obvious. At least it does to me. Sorry, do you want to do it, Jerry, or do you want to do it? Okay, great. (laughs) How does practicing the principles appear today in your relationship? That is a good one for me because. my hormones don't all only make me cry. They make me cranky. 
And one of the things that I have really in the last couple of years ago have, to have had to be really conscious with with my husband is um, is not not criticizing him, not finding his character defects, not um, overreacting to something he does. And understanding, again, how do I want to be seen in this world? Understanding that it's more, typically more about me than it is about him. And, you know, he's this wonderful man. I heard another speaker share about her husband, too. She just couldn't even see him clearly when she was first with him. And I've always been able to see my husband clearly, but yet there are times I still want to change him. And by keeping, sometimes it's just a matter of keeping my mouth shut is a way of, practicing the principles in, in my relationship because I know that there are times when it's better just not to say anything than say the wrong thing. Actually, that was what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, you know, being married has been an interesting process and I learned like there's so much value in keeping my mouth shut. You know, um, and, and then I go talk about it, you know, and pray about it, talk about it later and stuff. And then if there's something I need to talk about, I talk about it there. But, you know, I'm a big baby on the inside. Like, you know, I've got all these defects. I'm full of, you know, frustration and demands and resentments and all that stuff. And so they'll live with me. And all of a sudden, you know, if you aren't perfect at any given moment, you know, <laughs> I can start coming apart at the seams. And so for me, it's really helpful just to um, take a breath and be there and, you know, it's um, it's like the irony is you have a two-year-old. You know, it's so much. It gets more stressful. You know, it's life a little bit in some ways. But at the same time, it's like he gets to be the two-year-old. I gotta, you know, be the adult here. <laughs> so, um, let's see, the next one is. What's the young person has all that like? It says the number four instead of spelling it out and stuff. <laughs> this stuff's hard to read, man. It's like a text message. I mean. uh, are you okay when the bar is a lot higher for you than for most of everyone else? You know, I've had that thought, and that thought, for me, and I'm just speaking for myself, for me, that thought is about self-pity. You know, like, oh, the bar is so much higher for me. Like, other people, they can eat whatever they want. They can go have drinks after work. They can chew somebody out and not not have any resulting problem from it or whatever. Poor me, you know. I can't do all that stuff or whatever. Um, so self-pity for me, you know, is danger. It's like a red flag, you know, because uh, it's just a dead end and it's a deep, dark hole and I never climb out of unless I uh, do something about it. So I try to watch out for that. And, you know, the other thing is for me, speaking for myself, uh, you know, the bar's not that high. Like, there's a lot of challenges in life that a lot of people have all over the world, and I'm not dealing with nearly any of that stuff at all. So I uh, focus on gratitude. Gratitude for me is the opposite of self-pity or concern that, you know, things are harder for me than other people or whatever. But that's my experience. Yeah, I think that's what the gratitude list often does for me. Um, well, one of the things that really helps me a lot, because sometimes the bar being set higher is not just about the food, but of course about the behavior. And, um, you know, there could be a situation where there's somebody in my company that goes, they don't work, they're, you know, just brown-nosing, they do this, they do that. And then I have to say, well, but do you want to be that person? 
And if I don't want to be that person, then how can I think the bar is too high? You know, I'm happier being who I am and having the integrity to, you know, say what I'm going to do and do it and, and do it with kindness and all of those sorts of things than thinking, oh, you know, poor me, I have to live by a different standard than other people. Too many gifts associated with what I've been given in this program, for sure. And this must be a young person because the writing's so small that <laughs> I need my glasses. What suggestions do you have for dealing with disruptive people? I could say I would want to know more about the context of that. Um, disruptive people in, um, you know, physically disruptive or I, I guess I don't really completely understand the question, but I know that one of the things is that the people that are primary in my life, the people I get to choose in my life, not, you know, the people that are in there for work or, or whatever or sitting next to me on the airplane, but the people I choose in my life are not people that would ever be disruptive. You know, there are people that there's there's been relationships I've had to give up because um, once I spent some time in this program, I realized that it wasn't a good relationship or a right relationship, or the person wasn't the you know right person to be in my life. And it's amazing how the disruption you know goes away when that sorting sort of starts to happen. And then everybody that I spend time with, I really really value every moment of it. So I hope that kind of. Um, I'm not, not totally sure what you know, disruptive people. The intent there is, but for some reason, it makes me think about one of the like a huge defect I had that I started working on in OA early on that really changed for me, which was I wasn't able to say no to people. And certainly, people I had a lot more disruption in my life when I couldn't say no to people, and um, you know, I. I I wrote about it and worked a program around and stuff. And someone told me, um, here's what you got to do. Say no to everyone all the time about everything. Just say no. And this person said to me, you know, if you say no and then later you think, oh, I'd like to do it after all, like help them move or whatever, you know, then go say yes and they'll be happy. But if you say yes and want to say no later, they're going to be pissed off, you know. <laughs> and so... Um, so, like, it was the hardest thing in the world to start saying no to people because I had a lot of disruptive people in my life, you know. People wanted me to just do stuff for them or whatever because I never said no. There's certain people in the world that they can see you a mile away if you can't say no. <laughs> They'll just come right at you, you know. And then, anyways, I just started practicing saying no, and it was super hard. But it was like anything else. When you practice it, you know, you find out that the fear was just about the fear and not about the reality. And um, then I got super good at it. And then it was like this weird phenomenon where the universe stopped sending people to try and take advantage of me and be disruptive in my life, you know. And um, and I missed it because I, so, I had so much fun saying no to people, you know. It was like, a, especially it was like somebody I could tell was like a user, you know. And they had that look of horror on their face when I'd say no, like, you're kidding me, no? And I'd be like, ask me again. I'll say no again. <laughs> um, so, anyways, you know, that and the other thing I'll say about disruptive people is, um, you know, practicing these principles all are fair with the honesty stuff is I'm not perfect, you know, I'm not perfectly honest, et cetera, but I'm pretty, work pretty hard at trying to be honest and forthright. And when you do that, there's nothing left to hide. And when people who are disruptive or whatever, you know, difficult, 
um, I just I'm just bluntly honest with them, like, hey, here's you know here's what I think, here's what I know, and then I ask them bluntly honest questions, and that calms people down a lot because either they like they kind of shift and like all of a sudden they're not disruptive and we're connected, or they can't and they move on or whatever. Looks like this is the last question. Uh, uh-oh. How do you work your program around intimacy and sexual issues in your life? Uh, can you talk a w- about your progress? How do I work my program around intimacy and sexual issues in my life? Can I talk talk about your progress? Well, you know, there is that thing in the big book when it talks about sex, and it says something about, like, you know, everybody has sexual problems or whatever which I find very comforting, you know, <laughs> and I take literally, you know, and, um, you know, because it's so easy to go, like, why, you know, why this or whatever, or what's wrong with you, because, you know, in my mind, like, movies and all that stuff, they sell you a, a, a certain definition of intimacy and sexuality and relationships and love and all that stuff, and then there's real life, you know, and so I like the big book, because the big book's about real life, you know. And I appreciate people who, like, in the 1930s could just, like, be candid and honest and say, hey, this is real life, you know. Um, so I do, you know, it comes, you know, it sound like a broken record, but for me, you know, um, it comes back to the honesty stuff, you know, showing up and telling the truth is usually uh, the best thing that works for me. You know, the fearful thing about honesty, you know, is always like, hey, uh, I'm going to lose something if I'm honest. You know, I'm going to lose something, you know. And the reality is sometimes I do. But that's just something that gets lost to make way for something better, you know. And don't get me wrong, I'm not crazy with the honesty, you know. Like, I don't. I could walk down the street and just see some stranger and think, gee, that person's way too tall. I'm not going to walk over and tell them, hey, you're way too tall. That's being honest, you know. Uh, that's, you know, craziness. Um, but, I mean, like, you know, when it's important, I tell the truth and stuff. And, you know, um yeah, I bet everybody's had the experience once where, like, you were in this bad relationship and you were, like, you had to break up, and that's when you both told each other the entire truth, and then all of a sudden you were like, oh, I don't want to break up. This is great, you know, because it was the first time you were ever honest, you know. And, um, you know, for me, that's what NMC is about, is just showing up and telling the truth and um, being kind with the other person. And that, that, for me, is the place that courage comes into play because one of the things that I know, and, I again, I'm looking at my primary relationship with my husband, is that if, it's, if I want intimacy, I have to have that courage to, to take that step and have the conversation. And we've had to have some difficult conversations, and they haven't been fun. But the thing that I know that is if I'm with the right person and I do it, they will step up and meet me in the process. And it's proved itself to be true time and time again. So, again, in, in that way, I feel very lucky. And I think that's it. That's it. Yeah. And then I guess we get to close in the usual way. Okay, let's do the serenity prayer.